welcome to Macintosh Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we're watching My Cousin Vinny. Two New Yorkers accused of murder in rural Alabama, while on their way back to college, call in the help of one of their cousins, a loudmouth lawyer with no trial experience. I can't hear you say rural without instantly thinking rural juror. The rural juror. No, we've got a we've got a different accent issue going on in this episode. Yes, this movie was super fun. It's adorable. It's not overly complex. The plot is pretty uh, predictable, but it's fun. It's a solid, decent setup for performances to shine through. Yeah, we've got two very big personalities of actors. Uh, Well, one big personality and one actress who is playing a big personality. Mm -hmm. And it's just a highlight for them. Yeah. It's just, here's a tea. Now you go crazy with it. Pretty much. Um, And it's the the best of Italian meets the best of Southern. I don't know about that, but it's super fun. New New York meets Alabama. (laughs) This is one of those movies that there's not a whole lot to do dig into other than one very specific thing which we'll talk about with the ride yeah it's just i mean some guys get into some trouble their friend comes to be their lawyer he's not your typical lawyer and comedy ensues pretty much that's it and that's okay that's fun but uh it definitely resonated with audiences enough that it remains a cable classic to this day yeah i know I've seen bits and pieces here and there back in our TV days, but it's just one I've never seen the whole thing of. The budget for this movie was $11 million. Hey. You've got some big name stars. A few. And I will say, we'll get into it with the trivia. This was filmed almost exclusively on location. Oh, that's fun. So it grossed about $64 million. It's not a bad return. For a smaller comedy like this that... I don't think had that much press and weight behind it. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 1992, we've got plenty of action movies and other stuff going. Yeah. On. This is a very, very good box office return for a movie like this. Mm-hmm. An R rated comedy. Yeah. And let's be clear the only reason this movie's rated R is language. That's it. Yeah. Because Joe Pesci swears a fucking lot. He, he doesn't know how not to. Home Alone <laughs> was really hard for him. It was. It was very hard. So let's talk about our writing. Our writer is Dale Lawner. Now, you are going to know some of the films he wrote, even though you have never heard his name. Because before this, he wrote Ruthless People, Blind Date, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Mm, There it is. After this, he wrote Love Potion Number 9, Eddie, and 2019's The Hustle, which of course was... Uh, based a lot on his Dirty Rotten Scoundrels script, but he also has a story and screenplay credit. So it sounds like he did contribute to that film as well. Sure. I mean, I know Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is based on a different story, so it's not an original story. But yeah, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was pivotal to my upbringing (laughs) in so many ways. (laughs) What do we think of how Dale Launer's writing touched to this film? He's got a like a good enough script on its own and then you pepper in the comedy of the characters and that's where i really feel his touch because so many things are just incidental it's an incredibly well constructed script yes 
when you get to the end of the film and you start remembering all the signposts you had from the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. this is weirdly the rare comedy that will reward another viewing. Sure. I mean, I personally am just trained to catch those things. <laughs> and I did feel rewarded. Like, so that made it easier for me to call things. But I feel like the tiny touches that they put throughout the film, like, you know, knocking things over, you know, the the very specific choice. And this is more of a costume choice, but I wouldn't be surprised from the script, but like his suit. It could have just been a bad suit. No, this is a comically bad. <laughs> like he looks like he's an entertainer. It's just those things that just heighten what's happening. Well, and, you know, the grits. Grits is a very Southern food. But why are we having a five minute conversation about grits? And it's just for comedy until it's not. Well, we, it's, it's, it's a little bit of that Slumdog Millionaire. It's that whole thing of like, I'm going to show you all the ways in which I've learned how to beat this. <laughs> like I'm going to show it to you before I show my hand. It's great. It's impressive the level of detail Loner got with the script. During the final recess when Vinny and Mona Lisa are arguing about the photos, if you look in the background, there is a mint green convertible with a white roof driving on the street. Okay. And we know they're not in it. <laughs> okay. There's an exchange between the prosecutor and the automotive expert. That joke, the it's also turbocharged. What kind of equipment did you use to uh, find this out? I used a Hewlett Packard 5710A dual column gas chromatograph with flame analyzation detectors. Uh huh. Is that thing turbocharged? <laughs> Only on the floor models. <laughs> Is a almost verbatim exchange from an actual court transcript that appears in many of those. Funny moments in court collections. Oh, I love those. It's it's an actual court thing that somebody mm-hmm. did. And the dead on balls accurate line is a reference to a very real attorney named Joey Callow. The third name that Vinny gives to the judge, who is an actual fucking attorney. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's that kind of shit, though. Sure. It's just funny. It's a script that so easily could have been just a very dumb fish out of water. Mm-hmm. And instead, they flipped that and made it a whodunit as well. Yes. And that little mystery touch makes it far more interesting to watch than it would have been if it was just a dumb 90s comedy. Yeah. They really thought about their premise and made sure it was solid. It's so easy for legal drama and comedies to just make a mockery of how court works and then how the law is typically interpreted. I love it when someone shows me a wildly crazy view or application of the law. That's super fun to me. That's why the law can be so fascinating. But usually it's a device that suffers for the sake of the joke. And here that's not true. It's not, but we cannot give that credit to Lana. Oh, okay. Before we leave him, there is one other fun note. They mention later on a Sheriff Tillman in Jasper County Mm -hmm. uh, as they talk about running the plates and stuff. Sheriff Mac Tillman was the actual sheriff of Jasper County in Georgia where they were filming and he was included 
as a nod to him for all of his help while they were filming out there. Okay. So just a, a fun name note. Now, the man who gets credit for the legal accuracy of this film mm-hmm. is our director, Jonathan Lynn. Oh, okay. Now, before this, he actually made his name on British television because he is a Brit. He created the hugely successful BBC political comedies Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. Then he directed Clue and Nuns on the Run. Interesting. After this, he directed 1996's Sergeant Bilko, The Whole Nine Yards, and The Fighting Temptations. And he's done a lot of random little stuff. Those were the only big name movies I could throw up here. Before we get into it, what do we think of Lynn's directing of this film? Oh, it's fabulous. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, here's this is not a visual film. It doesn't have to be. Well, it's one of those things when we talk about directors, like some, you know, there are films where the stylistic use of the lens and the placement, yeah. that's a whole trademark of the director. This is not a film that needs that. And no. it shouldn't have that. That could be distracting to what's on the page. You're supposed to pick the style based on what's on the page. Like you, that's why I see we can have good movies that are ruined by the wrong director for the project. <clears throat> Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> This film didn't need that. I don't really notice camera angles. I don't notice, I don't notice tracking shots. I don't notice any of that because I'm so focused on what's being performed and the fact that it is compelling. And that's the way it should be. He's laser focused on the characters, Mm -hmm. whether it's in a funny moment or in an aha mystery moment or a dramatic moment. And it's not, it's also not like an intense movie. So he keeps a softness about how he's filming everything. Yeah. He keeps a little bit of distance where it's not super intense and in our face about sure. any of it. It's it's a and it moves very methodically. It's paced so well because it's paced like a movie that's set out in the middle of Georgia. It feels a little hot and humid. Yeah. Now Lynn was an actual lawyer before any of this. Oh, okay. So he insisted mm. upon the realism of the law in the film. Oh, I love that. And because of that, according to the ABA Journal of the American Bar Association, this film is ranked as number three on its list of the 25 greatest legal movies ever (gasps) made. It is widely considered to be one of the most legally accurate films in courtroom drama history. Mm. Law schools will actually screen the film for students. Mm as an example of courtroom procedure and trial strategy, especially in the case of expert witnesses. Oh, that makes sense. So again, the judge's insistence on procedure Mm -hmm. is so key. Yeah. That is something that never gets talked about in courtroom drama. No, because they think it's boring. It's boring and and it takes away from some of the drama. We talked about this a little bit with the verdict, which I believe is also widely regarded for for its trial understanding but it's also about personal injury which is a much darker side of the law but this movie makes the entire comedy around the procedure that's the whole thing and the procedure and the strategy is what makes the plot move forward that's what's amazing about this movie and why it's so good for lawyers to watch because it's just like this is a textbook example of how you impeach a witness. They talk about that the Vinny's cross-examination, while it's got the Gambini flair, is an incredibly competent and realistic process. 
the way they impeach witnesses in this film is exactly how you would do it if you were cross-examining. Yeah. So all of this Mm -hmm. means that this dinky little comedy, because of our director who wanted it to be precise, it elevates the film so much. Oh, it does. And the fact that the plot then revolves around Mm -hmm. that. So, and... And I have to give credit to Lawner here because then Lawner has to continue to write and rewrite that script. Well, and he has to make it make sense. Yeah. And how does it, they, I mean, they had to assume this, he's got a script, they get matched with the director. It's like, I'm really interested in this, but this is the sticking point for me. So these are the things in the script you've got to update and change. They, they go put their magic on, okay, this is how we're going to address this and not take away from the moments that we have. And make it more sound to the like what actually happened in court. Love it. It's great. It works really well. Oh, yeah. And like the judge is kind of being a jerk, but also he's been a judge for a long time. It makes complete sense that he would be like, you're going to come in my courtroom. You're going to respect the courtroom. And not only that, he's a judge in a small town. Sure. And, and he knows that people have come into this courtroom before disrespecting his authority. Sure. He's not going to put up with it because he's yep. like. I know the law. Yeah, I know what I'm talking about. And that's the biggest thing. For a lot of judges, to be perfectly honest, the vast majority of them mm-hmm. are fine with you if you follow the fucking rules. The angriest they will get with an attorney is when that attorney openly flaunts procedure. Yeah. Like, that is when a judge will hammer you. <laughs> and it makes perfect sense for this movie. One other fun note, Lynn, because he is a Brit, had a little trouble understanding Joe Pesci's accent at first. And the conversation about two Utes came from actual conversations <laughs> between the two of them. I love that. That's cute. You could say that. I did say that. Would you say that? Yeah. Is it possible to two Utes? Two uh, uh, what? Uh-oh. What was that word? Uh, what word? To what? What? Did you say utes? Yeah, two utes. What is a ute? Oh, excuse me, Your Honor. Two youths. Lynn thought the uh, misunderstanding was so funny, he decided to add it to the film. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's cute. All right. Well, let's talk about what really then makes this awesome story sing. Mm-hmm. And it's our cast. Oh, yeah. It almost always is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Let's talk first about one Joe Pesci as Vinny Gambini. We have talked about him twice on this show for Raging Bull and Goodfellas. You know, you probably know him better as a singer because he was a singer for a long time before he ever set foot into acting. No. (laughs) I know him very well as Harry from Home Alone. That is who he is. He's also Leo in Lethal Weapon. Meh. He's also the bad guy in Moonwalker from Disneyland. Whatever. <laughs> he's he's Joe fucking Pesci. He's a bat. He's a wet bandit, is what he is. But in this, oh, oh, he's he's fabulous. He's that guy. I particularly enjoyed that he embodies that guy mm-hmm. without making a comedic feast out of it. No, it's he's not he's not punching down with it, which that's the trick. He's not making him dumb. He's not. Ma- and he's also not playing the the loudmouth short guy. He's just I'm this guy, but I've earned it. 
if he's doing the same performance he does in Goodfellas, he's overshadowing everyone else in the film. Mm-hmm. Instead, he understands because he's an incredible actor. Sure. Oh, yes. He understands that there is such an insecurity with Vinny mm-hmm. that he cannot just be the loudmouth guy. Nope. He just has to be, I'm a New York Italian. What the fuck do you want from me? <laughs> He's constantly playing poker with the people he talks to. It's a game. It's it's like um, his cousin says, it's like, I've seen your parents fight. They're amateurs because all we do is watch Vinny fight. He fights with Lisa. He fights with the guy in the bar. He fights with the judge. He fights with the witnesses. All he does is fight because he's a professional. Yes, he is. I love it. He's incredible. Brings me so much joy. But yeah, it's it's the nuance that he was like, I'm not going to overdo this. And this is his first box office hit as a lead actor. Yeah, I get that. Because he's always he's always a sidekick. That's his personality. That's his style as an actor. That's a sweet spot. That's where he sings. I mean, Raging Bull is probably a good example of where you could consider him a co-lead in that. Sure. That's fair. And there's a handful of other movies where he's definitely the lead. But this is probably his biggest lead role in his entire career because he's such a supporting character actor. And so this is one of those weird one-off movies that was like, this proves the talent that this man has, even though it's not going to be his Oscar-winning performance. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Shortest speech in Oscar history. Now, another fun note here, because he is a singer. Um, Pesci reprised the character for an album. Every time I get the urge to visit my hometown, I'm sure that all my cousins will try to track me down. My heart says go, my head says no, it's best to stay away. But if I appear, I'm sure to hear all those jerk-offs say, Hey, Cousin Vinny, your Cousin Vinny, is there anything that you could do for me? Hey, Cousin Vinny. In 1998, Vincent LaGuardia Gambini sings Just For You. (laughs) No, thank you. Marissa Tomei joined him for some of the songs as Mona Lisa. I appreciate that. I will be cutting something from that album under here, just so we can hear it. It's not Mighty Thunderball. I don't want it. (laughs) But it's Joe Pesci singing as Vinny Gambini. Okay, fine. (laughs) I accept this. All right, let's get some Who Could Have Been Betters. Mm. Let's start with the one that I am both angry but also happy about. Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah. The noted misogynist asshole. He's garbage. He's a garbage human. Such a garbage human. But I get it. I get it. I get it. But I like, I mean, Joe Pesci over Dice. Oh, of course. Clay claimed it was a starring vehicle written for him, but that the failure of his film, The Adventures of Ford Farlane, killed his movie career entirely. Like they had a concert film coming right after that and they canned it because he was so bad in that movie. Yeah. Uh, and my note here was, couldn't have happened to a worse person. Aww. What a shame. What a pity. No. Let's talk about some people who I'm not as opposed to. About Jim Belushi. Uh, I worry that he would take this character and making him make him bumbling a little bit more. And he would it would be a caricature. It would feel like you're punching down. Here's where it would work. If New York is not the place and Chicago is where he comes okay. from, the entire movie works for me. 
Because if he comes from Chicago and he's got a Midwestern girlfriend. Okay. But then you, you but you have to make that switch. Absolutely. Because that's the only way Belushi can get that nuance is when you're taking it from his hometown. And like instead of Vinny, it has to be like Danny. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. How about Danny DeVito? Ooh, yeah. Danny DeVito. Danny could do this. He could. Danny DeVito's amazing. But I don't think it would be quite as good as Joe. Danny has a manic energy even regardless of what he brings. Sure, but I'm thinking about this time and where he was at as an actor. Just don't know. I mean, this is I mean, this is right at when he's doing Batman Returns. He could have done that. Probably. Yeah. I still pick Pesci. Yeah. But I don't hate DeVito. And finally, John Lovitz. Oh, yes. Not for this movie. He could. But it would be so overblown. No, because I, that's the thing about John Lovitz that people just don't give him credit for. He'd be incredibly restrained. He's, it's all about the face with him. I, I see if he, the difference here is Pesci is very physical. He's always throwing hands. If Lovitz was doing this, it would be all about making faces. It would not be hands. It would be faces. Yeah. It stinks. <laughs> Dude, I love that show. Anyway, Joe Pesci was the correct decision. I concur. Now let's talk about the next build actor, Ralph Macchio, as Bill Gambini. Okay, so like when I see Ralph Macchio, I was just like, what was he doing this for? Like he had all the karate kids. He doesn't need this film. And then it's like, oh, wait, he kind of needed to not be the karate kid in something. Fair, fair. Exactly. Before this, he was in Eight is Enough, Up the Academy, The Outsiders, which we talked about. Then The Karate Kid, The Karate Kid Part 2, and The Karate Kid Part 3. This is his first big post-Karate Kid film. And to be fair to him, after this, he takes a lot of TV guest star stuff. Yeah, he's he's doing that. And then also, I believe he went to college. I'm sure he did a lot of different stuff. But his credit credits wise, he really just takes guest star roles mm -hmm. predominantly. Um, he had a run on Ugly Betty. Uh, he was in the film Hitchcock. He, of course, had a memorable appearance in How I Met Your Mother. Yes, he did. And then right before Cobra Kai, he was on The Deuce. Yes, he is on The Deuce, which is a fascinating show. It's very well done. So what do we think of Ralph Macchio in this movie? He's not there for very long. I get that. He's not in it very much, and he doesn't do a whole lot, but he's just got that Italian kid charm. Without overdoing it. Yeah, without, it's, he's, he's not leaning into it too much. He's not, you know, it's, he's just not a lot of bravado. This is going to be a common refrain for each of these actors. Sure. None of them ham it up, and that's to the credit of the movie. Here's the thing. Nobody steals the show. Nobody's distracting or taking away from someone else. It's very well balanced. Yes. Very well on all fronts. Well, maybe one actor, but we'll get there. Okay. Um, but for the most part, all of these people are cast for a very specific look and type. Sure. And they all play it as incredibly nuanced as you can. Sure. That's what makes the movie work. Also, Ralph Macchio can still get it. Oh, yeah. 57 playing uh what's his butt and again daniel larusso danny larusso if you haven't watched cobra kai go watch it it is so fun that includes me apparently yes you would like it all right well let's talk about the closest we get to a scene stealer mm -hmm. 
Marissa Tomei. It may. As Mona Lisa Vito. Wow. She's a treasure. Before this, she was in The Flamingo Kid playing for Keeps, A Different World, and Oscar. After this, she was in Chaplin, The Paper, Only You, Four Rooms, Slums of Beverly Hills, What Women Want, In the Bedroom, Someone Like You, Anger Management, Alfie from 2004, Factotum, Wild Hogs, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, The Wrestler, Cyrus, The Lincoln Lawyer, Crazy Stupid Love, The Ides of March, Trainwreck, The Big Short, Captain America Civil War, Spider-Man Homecoming, Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man Far From Home, The King of Staten Island, Spider-Man No Way Home, and coming soon, she is going to be in a miniseries called Miz playing Gloria Steinem. That's good casting. What do we think of Marissa Tomei in this movie? She is so fun. She's so fun because she's the girlfriend he's brought along. Uh Uh-huh. And... She wants to be helpful, but he's kind of not nice to her. He's he's very much sit there and be pretty. Well, he could he it could have been again very stereotypical. I'm just mean to this woman. Yeah, and it's not. It's not. It's this is my girlfriend. We fight a lot. That's because, that's their dynamic because we're Italian. So this is, I mean, this for is, real. This is what we do. Yes, and then she wants to be desperately helpful. And again, the point he makes, the line he says throughout the movie is. I, I don't know. Yeah. Like, he doesn't realize how deep over his head he is until he starts getting into it. Mm-hmm. And she's really there, like, keeping him afloat. Um, And, you know, she is definitely the smarter one of the two. No <laughs> doubt. But, you know, she's just fun. And she has that monologue. She does. That courtroom monologue. I mean, I knew about it, and then it came, and it was just like, yep. I can reveal this now. She won Best Supporting Actress at mm-hmm. the Oscars. This, this isn't new information. But it's that monologue. Yeah. That scene cements it. I mean, she's great through the whole sure. film. And that doesn't hurt that. Mm-hmm. But it is wild how good she is in that moment. And you're like, yep, give it to her. I don't. It's just, yeah, there you go. Please. Mm-hmm. She is so incredibly important to the movie even though it's not really about her nope but she makes it so that she's important and not that she makes the movie about her Mm-mm. but she makes it that her character is so integral well i can't remember when it was i think it was when they were in the courtroom like one of the first things like oh she's like that's what happened they she knows she'll be the expert witness because she knows everything there is to know about cars it's just i was like oh they dropped that so yeah. early it's great. Yeah. It's just, I love it. You know what this is? This movie is the equivalent of one of those like little cozy mystery books. Yes. That you read on a rainy day. That's what this movie is. Yeah. Just with a lot more F-bombs. <laughs> I mean, I'm comfortable with that. That makes me comfy. All right. Who could have been better? Lorraine Bracco. Fair. <laughs> and Debbie Mazar. <sighs> Debbie would have made it all about her. I love Debbie Mazar. But no. It's Marissa fucking Tomei. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's Marissa Tomei. Also, Debbie is a walking stereotype when you say Italian girlfriend. <laughs> She's the archetype. They they cast the exact right person to be wild, but also real. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it great. And finally, Mitchell Whitfield as Stan Rothenstein, mm. Billy's friend. Now, 
Mitchell does not have the biggest amount of credits in the film. Mm-mm. But when Diana figured out who he was. <laughs> so I was like, why do I know him? I feel like I should know him. I'm like, I'm not telling you. It's you like, have to figure like, this you out. You will figure this out. I was like, okay, give me a minute. Watch him drive. I'm watching it. He talks a few more times. <gasps> it's Barry. <laughs> it's Barry, Rachel's ex-fiance on Friends. A little more fresh-faced, a little more college age. Exact same voice. That was what got me. I know that voice. I know it. He is the closest we have to like comic relief in the film. He's the only one who is very vocal about the fact that Vinny doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. Which is good, because if we didn't have that, we'd be like, y'all are dumb. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, I'm like, I am aware of what's happening. And also, I, I like the, there are two New York college kids. Mm-hmm. One is Italian, one is Jewish. Yep. But I like that they play this as that, of course, they don't play it for any of the stereotypes. No. Instead, they just make him not the Italian. The non-Italian. So that he can step back and be like, what the fuck is your cousin doing? Yep. <laughs> He's going to get us put in jail for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. There is one who could have been better for this. Oh. And I think you would agree with this one. Mm. Will Smith auditioned for this role. Oh, interesting. Will Smith would have been fun in a movie like this. He would be great in a movie like this. My problem with in this film, I feel like he would be the token black guy. It's true. And to be fair, the next year he was in Six Degrees of Separation. <laughs> so he, he went a different career path. Mm-hmm. All right. Now to Arpons. Arpons. Random people of note. We could argue that some of these people deserve to be in the upper tiers, but um, they're really well known for one thing, specifically this next guy, Uh Fred Gwynn as Judge Chamberlain Haller. Okay, so here's the thing about Fred Gwynn. Nobody knows his name. No. But they all look at him and go, why do I know that guy's face? Oh, you, you know why you know his face. Because he's Herman Munster. Hell yeah, he's Herman Munster. His most famous role. Here's the only reason why I knew that. And I, because I know that he passed away not too long after this film was done. Yeah. And I remember the People magazine articles and everything about him passing and just talking about the monsters. And then not too long after this, or maybe it was just before they had the, the new Monsters TV show, which he was in. And it was like, I just remember it was all over the place. I loved watching the Munsters and I was so weirded out by his actual face, like not in Herman makeup. <laughs> he's so good. Oh, he's fabulous. And I, I just love like he is a full foot taller. He's over a foot taller than Joe Pesci. Yes. And they never use that as a joke, but his they're like, they're both just so imposing with the way they perform. It's fabulous. They use that height to impose that little bit of fear. Sure. In Vinny of like, oh, shit, this guy is not somebody I can con. Mm -mm. (laughs) Like he realizes very quick, I cannot argue around this dude. Nope. I have to figure out a different way. As we said, this is his final film role. Lynn proposed him for the role after he saw him in 1984's The Cotton Club. Mm. Who could have been better? Considered for the role was Christopher Lloyd. Oh, he would have been fine. It would have been a different vibe, but he would have been fun too. I don't think he works quite as well as the Southern Judge. Oh, he could have done that. I mean, Christopher Lloyd can do a whole lot. He but does everything. I don't know why, but Fred Gwynn works 
better as that stentorian southern judge character for me. Mm -hmm. We also have Lane Smith playing prosecutor Jim Trotter III. He is instantly recognizable. We've talked about him three different times on this show. His name does not match his face. No, it does not. Network Francis and Red Dawn. He's appeared in all three of those films as an Arpon. I'm sorry, but my favorite role of his is as the dad in Son-in-Law. It's very good. That's his, that's his best role. He also scarred many of our souls with the evil coach in Mighty Ducks. Oh, God, I forgot he's in. See, he's in everything as that jackass. Yeah, 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 yeah. In this, I like, again, the nuance he brings. Yeah, he he's not. You know, he thinks he's got a one up on the other guy. This is an easy murder charge. No, no, uh, it's a big case for me. It's going to be great. And then it's like, oh, this guy catches on pretty quick. And then when he's outraged, it's because the other guy's winning. He's poking all the holes in his case. He's mad. And then at the end of the film, he's also like, hell of a lawyer and job. Come back anytime. Yeah. But I love that it's like when he's in that courtroom, mm -hmm. he's a prosecutor. He's there to win. When he's out of that courtroom, it's a good old boy. He doesn't care. That's a twist. That's a nice little twist that I appreciate. Mm -hmm. Then we have Austin Pendleton playing the public defender, John Gibbons. Now, he is a big time character actor. You might know him best as Max, the evil sidekick in the Muppet movie. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what I hate about this. Mm -hmm. Austin Pendleton was actually a stutterer. And he worked very hard to not do that on film. And he did not like the character. He did not want to take the role. but Jonathan Lynn was his friend, so he agreed to it. Mm. According to him, it took years before he could get film offers that did not involve a stutter. I, it was like, ooh, that's, that's Hollywood, man. Yeah. I hate that. But he's very funny. The thing I like about it is the stutter, the one nice thing is they're not playing it as like him being wacky. It's that he's so nervous that he can't get through a sentence. Mm. That's where I'm like, they treated it with a little bit more respect than they could have. <laughs> it's just that Hollywood saw it and was like, let's make him the stuttering guy. And he's like, fucking no. Mm -hmm. All right. Then we have a few recognizable faces. Bruce McGill as Sheriff Farley. We've seen him in both Cliffhanger and Lincoln. Mm -hmm. James Rebhorn playing the expert witness George Wilbur. He is Mike Birbiglia's dad in Sleepwalk With Me and a longtime character actor mm -hmm. of comedic note. And finally, playing JT, the drunk guy outside the bar, is Chris Ellis. He is a great character actor that you would know best as Deke Slayton in Apollo 13. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Now, as we mentioned, Marissa Tomei won the Supporting Actress Award. Yes, there is a longstanding rumor that Jack Palance read the wrong name at the 1993 Oscar ceremony. Now, considering that officials are stationed offstage to correct the presenter in such an event, that is official procedure, this is fairly unlikely. Mm -hmm. Palance, I'm sure, was older. He might have been having those issues. But by all accounts, no, this, this is who won. Mm -hmm. uh, of course... The controversy got rekindled after the 2017 Oscars and the La La Land Moonlight debacle. But again, in that situation, the people who were supposed to immediately correct the issue were not there. And that gets us to trivia. And there's a lot of fun trivia here. Vinny knocking over the chessboard while talking about his name was an accident. Oh. 
complete accident. But Jonathan Lynn thought it was so funny, he decided to keep it in the final edit. Okay. Pesci also had the fantastic ad lib when he was cross-examining Mrs. Riley, holding up his fingers. Now, Mrs. Riley, and only Mrs. Riley. Despite being pitted against each other in this film, Joe Pesci and Fred Gwynn were incredibly good friends in real life. Mm. Pesci was five foot four inches while Gwynn was six foot five. But they were best friends. That's precious. Pesci's from New Jersey, but he performed in New York. Yeah. And Gwyn is a native New Yorker. Mm -hmm. The New York City jokes are very funny, of course, because Pesci's a Jersey kid. Gwyn is the actual New Yorker in that equation. And as Vinny leaves, Fred Gwyn is giving the exact same wave he used when playing Herman Munster. I love it. Holler has a Yale law degree on his wall. Fred Gwyn, however, was a Harvard man graduating through the GI Bill. Mm Mm-hmm. Holler's chair also has an incredibly high backrest, very reminiscent of the furniture in the mansion in The Munsters. Mm-hmm. They did a lot of little Munsters in references yeah. without knocking you over the head with it. During John Gibbon's opening statement, uh, when he is so overwhelmed that he slaps a juror on the shoulder, you can visibly see... The other actors at the defense table, Machio, Whitfield, and Pesci, all trying to stifle laughter. I love it. (laughs) Some law notes. Oh. When Holler overrules Vinny's objection to the surprise witness, the judge in that moment committed a reversible error that would have been excellent grounds for appeal if Bill and Stan had been convicted. Mm -hmm. Vinny was absolutely correct on procedure, but the judge was pissed and (laughs) decided to let the witness through. During Mona Lisa's climactic testimony, had she ultimately refused to cooperate, period, Vinny still had an out. Legally, while it's discouraged by most professional ethics standards, the rules of procedure would allow him to testify as an expert himself in general automotive knowledge. This is because he could not have anticipated that such knowledge would be relevant at the beginning of the trial. That's fair. All right. I like that. But that's not as interesting. It's not. It it was just an interesting note of he still had one last ditch option if Mona Lisa had just Mm -hmm. not decided to cooperate. Sure. At one point, a sequel was planned where Vinny would be practicing law in Britain. (laughs) No. Uh, Marissa Tomei eventually dropped out. And while they made several attempts to try to write it without Mona Lisa in the script, they could not figure out that dynamic, so they dropped the project entirely. That's the right call. However, in 2017, mystery writer Lawrence Kelter, who is not a big writer, he's a, he's a self-published kind of guy, mm-hmm. but he has started a sequel novel series. I think he's got two on Amazon right oh. now. And the first one is called Back to Brooklyn. And he has Vinny and Mona Lisa investigating crimes as a sort of Gambini version of the Thin Man series. It's a sort of silly take on the weirdo drunken couple doing investigations. That's nuts. Just with Vinny and Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm. I mean, why not? Sure. The screech owl near the cabin in the woods was an actual owl Mm. (laughs) with training to not be scared away by gunfire. Uh, They got it to open its mouth with small pieces of beef, and then they added the screeching in post. Mm. The reaction of the owl turning and looking at Vinny while he's wildly shooting into the air was very real, and they got it in a single take. Oh, that's awesome. 
Perlin, quote, we got amazingly lucky with that screech owl. Oh, sure. <laughs> That's awesome. And finally, uh, some notes on the filming. It took place in Georgia, in uh, as Beecham County is not a real county in Alabama. Mm. The three hotels that are used in the film are now closed, but the Sackasuds is still open and is still named Sackasuds. Aw, cute. Uh, the prison scenes were filmed at Lee Arendelle Correctional Institute in Alto, Georgia. However, that prison contains neither a death row nor a death chamber. Uh, exteriors were filmed in Monticello, Georgia, with all of the other town mm. sites and different stuff. And apparently the internal courtroom scenes were filmed during triple digit heats in the Georgia summer in a converted warehouse with a corrugated metal roof. That sounds bad. That's no fun. No, no, no fun. And that leads us to ratings for every film. We have a specific rating system for this one. It's going to be 1964. No, grits. <laughs> How many grits? <sighs> Just regular, I guess. Regular. Instant grits? No self-respecting southerner uses instant grits. I take pride in my grits. So, Mr. Tipton, how could it take you five minutes to cook your grits when it takes the entire grit-eating world 20 minutes? I don't know. I'm a fast cook, I guess. I'm sorry, I was all the way over here. I couldn't hear you. Did you say you're a fast cook? That's it? Are we to believe that boiling water soaks into a grit faster in your kitchen than on any place on the face of the earth? I don't know. Well, perhaps the laws of physics cease to exist on your stove. Were these magic grits? I mean, did you buy them from the same guy who sold Jack his beanstalk beans? Uh, objection, Your Honor. Objection sustained. Are you Mr. sure about Tipton, that five minutes? Ignore the question. Know. Are you sure about that five minutes? I don't know. I think you made your point. Are you sure about that five minutes? I may have been mistaken. I got no more use for this guy. <laughs> How many piles of grits? I think I'm going to go with four. I think a four is a great, a solid note. Like, it's not so mind-blowingly great that I'm like, I gotta watch this again. But it's so good. This is a movie that you don't watch, like, over and over again. This is a movie that a couple of years later you go, I haven't watched that in a while. Oh, yeah. If you're flipping channels and it comes on, you're like, I can watch this for 20 minutes. It's on HBO Max right now, so it's an easy enough one to stream. But Oh, yeah. That's just a fun fucking movie. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Well, for our next film, Diana, our next film. we are going to jump from one courtroom to another kind of. Okay. We are watching 1993's The Pelican Brief. Okay. This is one that I've read the book. <laughs> well, it's John Grisham. I mean, we were definitely a John Grisham household. Let me tell you. John Grisham writes good books, y'all. He does. He really does. He really does. But before we go, we have some new movies we've seen. New movies. We have a lot of movies to talk about. Yeah, it's that gap between Oscar season and when we come back. Some good, some not so much. But uh, a wide variety to discuss here. All right. So first we saw Turning Red. 
A 13-year-old girl named Mei Lin turns into a giant red panda whenever she gets too excited. Movie is precious, and I love it. <laughs> I will admit on this one that I have seen it all in some chunks. I haven't gotten to sit down and just watch it all in one, but wow, what a good movie. <laughs> it's just cute and sweet and is a very important puberty story. People are getting so mad about Disney stuff and they need to shut up because like these movies are even better than some of the stuff Disney and Pixar have done all throughout the past. Like, and that's not saying anything bad about something like Toy Story, which has its own moments of like, whoa, what a strong statement. But like, this is just a purely good movie storytelling. <laughs> and also, we don't get very many stories about girls during this time. No. That like 11 to 14, we don't get that because either you're a little girl or you're a whore. There's no middle. Yeah. Maylin's just precious. Precious. I love her. They're all precious. All of her friends are the best. Great. Love it. It's quite delightful. You really do need to watch it, especially if you're a child of the 90s. Next, we saw Everything Everywhere All at Once. An aging Chinese immigrant is swept up in a wild adventure where she alone can save the world by exploring other universes connecting with the lives she could have led. This movie was perfection and is currently the one to beat for Oscars. It I... just is for all the categories. Everything. Every fucking thing. The only thing it doesn't have is a quote-unquote lead actor because I feel like he's more of a supporting actor, but fuck it, put him in, I don't care. I mean, if you really want to put James Hong in as supporting actor, and then we can just cover all the bases. I'd be okay with that. But holy shit, this movie. It's it has so good. everything. It's got amazing action. It has a beautiful story. It has such funny, funny things in it. It's just good. It's just good. And stunning visual thought and process that goes beyond the we're going to recreate this era idea. Sure. This is one of those movies that you go, this is why we have things called movies, because you get to do shit like this. Yeah. These are these are people who have a very beautiful story to tell, but had a lot of fun doing it. And I, I have not gotten to see their other films. I'm desperate to now just because of how amazing this was. Yeah, it's it's the one to beat for everything. I Writing, mean, directing, best film. It's it. If it doesn't get nominated in like almost every major category, I'm going to be pissed. If it doesn't get the top five, I'll be pissed. The hype is so real for this. You simply have to go watch it. I hear people who have seen it on streaming who didn't get to see it. And then there's a whole nother resurgence of, oh, my God, this movie. Yep. Everyone who sees it agrees. It's just incredible. You have to. Next, we saw The Lost City. A reclusive romance novelist on a book tour with her cover model gets swept up in a kidnapping attempt that lands them both in a cutthroat jungle adventure. This movie was everything I wanted it to be. It does exactly what's on the box and nothing else. And it delivers perfectly. Mm -hmm. It's funny. It's smart. It makes fun of its genre without punching down on anyone, really. The Sandra Bullock character does kind of punch down on the cover model, but it's earned in the moments. And then he also rebuts it really well. It's really good. It's really good. He's not just dumb. He's not just dumb. He it's, plays dumb, but he's not just dumb. I know. It's a little overlong, like most of these kinds of movies are. 
but I'm not mad about that. It's it's more like it hits all those same tropes every single time. It's super fun. You should watch it. You really should. Also, Daniel Radcliffe, it's great. He plays a little petulant asshole. Love it. It's so cute. He's having all the fun. <laughs> As in his own words, I'm fucking Harry Potter. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> like, he has fuck you money and he's going to fuck you with it. He does not care. <laughs> Next, we saw Sonic the Hedgehog 2. When the manic Dr. Robotnik returns to Earth with a new ally, Knuckles the Echidna, Sonic and his new friend Tails is all that stands in their way. This is exactly what you expect from a Sonic movie while still being cute. Story-wise, it's not great. You know, the first one is surprising because they kept it really tight. Mm -hmm. This one wanders a lot. Yeah. Like by the third act, I'm going, what the fuck? Wrap it up. It is is too long. But I like the crux of the story is that Dave is worried that Sonic needs friends. Uh huh. And he gets friends. Sweet. And it's cute. And they basically made Knuckles into Drax. Which is a lovely choice. I was worried about like, what the fuck are they going to do with Knuckles here? And then they just made Knuckles the oblivious alien creature. <laughs> and Sonic does the John Ralphio and my heart was really happy. Mm-hmm. It's great. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, it's fine. Also, Tails is precious in the film. Tails is precious. They they play with they play with all the Sonic stuff, which that's the fun part about it. It's, mm-hmm. it's Could we not have made this an hour and a half long? It's so long. <laughs> Next, we saw The Northmen. An action-filled epic that follows a young Viking prince on his quest to avenge his father's murder. This is extremely gory, but not bad. I loved it. It's a rad fucking movie. It's a little long. Yeah. It is a little long, um, but I like the story. It's well done. It's, uh, it's a Dave Eggers film. It's a bloody Viking Hamlet. Yeah. And it delivers on exactly what you think it's going to be. They touch on all of the weird, gorier parts of Viking lore in cool ways without without feeling gratuitous. Like, honestly, it gets gory because the Vikings were fucking gory. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot of detail and attention that he definitely put into telling the story. It's a really good story. This is one of those movies that's going to get a lot of visual nominations because it's a Dave Eggers film. But deservedly so. It's it's a very beautiful film, despite it being very, very dark. Next, we saw The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Nicolas Cage plays Nick Cage, channeling his iconic characters as he's caught between a superfan and a CIA agent. This movie is so bad. And not bad in a good way. It's just boring. And it's not good. And it's nobody in the film's fault. The story is bad the conceit and plot is bad the best parts of this movie are when nick cage is having to confront nick cage that's when it's actually kind of entertaining it's pretty funny it's funny and it's also just like wow yeah he he's actually reckoning himself himself a little bit here yeah um it's not worth it it's not worth your money uh, well, it's worth your it's worth your time if you've got streaming and you really like Nick Cage. If you really like Nick Cage, it's probably worth watching because it's it's him kind of commenting on his career and his life and what he's dealt with. But it's kind of a miss if you're a casual movie fan. <laughs> not good. No, it's not very good. Next, we saw Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. 
Doctor Strange teams up with a mysterious teenage girl from his dreams who can travel across multiverses to battle multiple threats, including other universe versions of himself, which threaten to wipe out millions across the multiverse. I really liked this. I thought it was a very great post-Endgame era superhero film. It's a film that does not rely at all on Captain America Iron Man bullshit, but it is very much a Doctor Strange and the Scarlet Witch film. Very much like Captain America Civil War is really a Iron Man Captain America movie. That's really what's happening in that film. That's that's how I feel about this one. And I really like that it pays off a lot of work that we got from the Marvel TV series on Disney+. Plus. I am more interested in this film because, first of all, people hate it. A lot of the Marvel super fans hate this movie, but I love it because this is Sam Raimi doing his best Sam Raimi shit. And it's good. A lot of people hate what, I mean, without getting too spoilery, what's going on with Wanda. I think what happens with Wanda makes complete sense after WandaVision. I don't have a problem with it. She's up to some bad shit. We got to reckon with some of that. I don't have a problem with any of that. Also, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the Marvel world, you know what this story is also building to. (laughs) So, which I will not talk about here because, oh my God, we could go on for hours. But with every Marvel thing that comes out, half people are pissed and half people are like, I love it. It's great. Yeah. I'm for a movie like this where it doesn't feel quite as attached to the whole thing for me, Mm -hmm. I'm more looking at it as its own film and I'm like, This is the perfect blend of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man era, which revisiting is a little tough to watch because you're like, oh, yeah, he really went comic book with this. And you really have to shift your expectation when he's making it. And here he really went more horror film. He did both. He mixes both. Which he did very well. It's the corny Spider-Man superhero bit with the Evil Dead smirking horror comedy bit. And he folds it together in a way that I'm like, yo, this is one of the better standalone Marvel movies in a while. It it is. It truly is. Like, give Sam his credit. He knows how to do this. Well, he he told this story very well, and it's a very dark story. That's all you had to do. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm I'm a fan. Next, I saw Downton Abbey, a new era. The Crawley family goes on a grand journey to the south of France to uncover the mystery of the Dowager Countess's newly inherited villa. I mean, it's another season of Downton all smushed together in a film, (laughs) which is totally fine. It's fun. One set of the family goes off to a villa. Another set of the family is, is shooting a film in the castle, whatever it is, the estate. It's fine. It's silly. And if you like Downton, it's good movie. This is that's my thing. I have no ill will toward Downton. I recognize that it's it's high quality television of what of its kind. Yep. I just don't care. <laughs> it's totally fair. So next we saw Top Gun Maverick. After more than thirty years of service as one of the Navy's top aviators, Pete Mitchell is where he belongs, pushing the envelope as a courageous test pilot and dodging the advancement in rank that would ground him. Okay, before we talk about this movie, we have to talk about how we saw this movie. Oh, shit. Cinemark here, where we are, has something called D-Box seats, which are very nice reclining seats that rumble. Now, I, I knew it would like move and shake a little bit with the sound, 
oh fuck no it actually tilts and pivots and moves and that's what we did for the whole movie and it was absurd and awesome i wish i could see the first top gun in d box desperately i'm sure at some point they'll have a special double feature screening top gun's such an integral part of like my whole upbringing Mm -hmm. (laughs) that i i I went back and forth with some feelings on this movie a lot Mm -hmm. somebody made this comment and i think it's pretty accurate is like top gun maverick is what if we made top gun but we actually like tried to do it good Mm. because the original top gun i love and people love it that love it but it's also a very dumb movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. However, the action sequences in that movie were groundbreaking and incredible. Nobody had done the kind of camera work on fighter jets until that point. Tony Scott got the idea to strap actual cameras to the nose of an F-14 Tomcat. Mm-hmm. And the amount of effort they put to make this movie even better. To meet that challenge again, yeah. The effort that they went through to get these shots to do the maneuvers that they're coming up with in this film using the new types of planes and then the homages and then the callbacks. And then, you know, the weirdness of Miles Teller looking so much like Anthony Edwards. I mean, that was something he says, like, you know, no one's ever told me I look like Meg Ryan or or Anthony Edwards. But then, you know, they lightened my hair and I had grown up the mustache. And Tom's like, oh, my God, you look like you could be their kid. And he is actually the exact age that child would be. Yeah. Based on when that film. So it's just weird. He's great. I also love how much taller he is than Tom, is than Tom Cruise. And I love how, like, they kind of use that a little bit. It's great. Um I am not a huge Top Gun fan. Like, I'm like, it's fine. I get why people like it. But like, this was fun. And there's so much callback. There's a lot of callback. But I don't feel like it uses it as a crutch. No, 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 no. It, it, it's just funny because what they did was they, they were like, well, we have to have a new romance interest. Well, let's do the mini callback to this one character from yeah. the original movie that, that doesn't even show up. She's just mentioned for half a line. But- but also, like, the flashbacky stuff is really more to provide a little bit of context for a character in the moment. And it just, I don't feel like it's a crutch. And I have to say, getting to see Val on camera was really good. It's so sweet hearing Tom talk about the conversation he had with Val about making, he has to be in this movie. He absolutely has to be in movie. And Val was adamant that he has to be in this movie. And so they just... They wrote around it and they used AI for his voice and it worked. It worked really well. And it was, it was still so really sweet. Good. And, and then like they hug in the movie, which is not like a secret. And you're just like, that's so sweet. It's it's they beautiful. Dicks. And I gotta and I gotta say, Tom, he has built up such a reputation with the Mission Impossible stuff as an mm-hmm. actor. Again, we don't like him as a person, but as an actor, we've watched all these Mission Impossible and the Ethan Hunt thing is such a thing and it's so yeah. intense and focused. And he put on Pete Mitchell like a glove, like it never left. That's where all of this started for him. He's a complete asshole who has no fucking plan of what he's going to do next. And he's going to continue to push it Mm -hmm. far beyond what anybody tells him to do. And Tom still has that. He has not done that role in so long. But that. And he just, it's like he never left it. Yep. It was the best thing i could ever get out of a top gun sequel they did it right and they did it great well done 
And next, we saw Jurassic World Dominion. Four years after the destruction of Isla Nublar, dinosaurs now live and hunt alongside humans all over the world. This fragile balance will reshape the future and determine once and for all whether human beings are to remain the apex predators on a planet they now share with history's most fearsome creatures in a new era. This movie is so dumb. It's a bad movie. It's not a good movie, but dinosaur on dinosaur action, cool. All of our favorite people from the original, cool, except where's Timmy? Timmy should have been on that fucking island being super cool because I fucking love that guy. I mean, fair, but... Uh, Missed opportunity. Oh, let's just put it this way. If this movie had just been pure fan service, I would have been okay with it because the fan service in this movie actually works in fun ways and the dynamics are cool. However, mm-hmm. the plot has gotten so convoluted, mm-hmm. so out of control. Colin Trevorrow cannot write a film to save his fucking life. He sh- he's good at directing them. He should not write them. And I know Stephen handpicked this guy to do this shit, but I mean... The first one that he did was good. The second one, not awful. This one, bad. No, the second one was bad. Writing-wise, it was terrible. The second one I guess it was, didn't bother me as much. This one does. They both bother me because it's just so overly complicated. Mm-hmm. Like... One of the great things about it is that they took something that's really ridiculously overwrought. I mean, Michael Crichton made a very weird, complicated story. Mm-hmm. And it's cool, but it's hard to like boil down. Mm-hmm. And Stephen boiled it down. He did. He made it very understandable. He took what was cool about it. They're just trying to do so many things with this fucking movie. And it's just exposition monologue after exposition monologue. Yeah, well, I get it. But. but then again, I'll pay money every day to watch Jeff Goldblum go, you, you made a promise to a dinosaur? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and have a weird conversation going way over the top trying to help them cut a cord. See, to me, that just harkens back to Andy and Ben. <laughs> just Andy and Ben. Tall, lanky guy. Ask other dude. Seemingly obvious question. Yep. It's so bad. It's, it's, not, it's not good. We need to stop putting Chris Pratt in movies for a while. Well, until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. 